Welcome back to the podcast for Cultural Reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. Your host for today's episode is Ryan Eras. Welcome back one and all to the podcast for Cultural Reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute and hosted on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. My name is Ryan Eras and I am joined as always by Nathan Oblack and Dr. Joe Boot. And we are pleased to, uh, to be together and to be uh, presenting to you again uh, this week. Thanks for sticking with us. I'm going to flip over to Nathan for a couple of housekeeping announcements, just about what's been going on with the Ezra Institute. And then we'll get into our topic as we continue our, uh, our short series on Aquinas. Today, we're dealing with the subject of Aquinas and the state. But first, Great, it's thanks. over to you, yeah. Nate. Yeah, thanks, Ryan. We're looking forward to getting into that topic. Um, but Joe, you uh, you just finished up a really busy week in Phoenix. Uh, you were one of the speakers at ReformCon, and uh, why don't you just quickly tell us a little bit about your time there? Well, we had a very busy couple of weeks, actually, because um, in as you know, in front of that, we had the Christianity and Culture Colloquium uh, in Ontario, and then we uh, headed on down to, right. um, to Tennessee uh, to uh, mm-hmm. spend time with our... Um, international director um, and uh, the uh, beginnings of our new operation in the US um, where we are there in Chattanooga mm-hmm. and then it was yeah everything's moving yeah. forward there and uh, from there it was across to Phoenix for um, reform con and then speaking at um, Apologia Church so it was a it was a fabulous few days they had a, a packed house at the the Sheraton there in um, uh, in Phoenix and uh, a very um, encouraging and uh, fruitful time, a great lineup of um, speakers. And as I think we mentioned in the past, quite a few Ezra fellows on the docket there, which of course includes uh, Dr. Andrew Sandlin and um, Dr. James White. Uh, and uh, both were both were featured speakers um, at the conference. And uh, it really was a, uh, oh, a Ben Merkel, who was due to be there, another Ezra fellow, um, actually wasn't able to make it after all because of a, a health issue, but uh, he's, uh, I understand oh, he's bad. okay now. Um, but it was a, it was a great time. Um, mm. I was on, uh, I was on James White's The Dividing Line for an impromptu uh, 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 podcast mm. there. So uh, people may want to tune in to, mm. to that. We had a very interesting conversation. So that was recorded while we were at ReformCon. And then I was addressing nice. uh you know the subject of uh, ruler of kings. I was actually looking at the the issue of what is the, the the appropriate relationship of church and state. So it actually relates to our topic today. What I was addressing at ReformCon, and then mm-hmm. um, I had the privilege of speaking at Apologia Church on the Sunday afternoon, which was um, really packed to the gunnels. Just a fabulous uh, fabulous time with them, chance to worship with uh, with uh, Apologia Church. So uh, a really, really good time for mm-hmm. the for, for the ministry all round. Yeah, that's great. And you, uh, from what I understand, toured around in Dr. White's RV for a little <laughs> bit. Well, yeah, James and I had a bit of a spin uh, uh, around uh, a part of Phoenix in his um, in his SUV, uh, not towing his uh, not not towing his uh, mobile uh, um, apologetics facility. That he travels around the country and but right. uh, just his uh, his beautiful truck. So uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, it was fun okay. Uh, it's fun for James and, and I it, to get yeah. some chance for some <laughs> some fellowship, and uh, we had a meal out one evening with some of the other guys from Apologia. So it was a it was a good time. It was nice to catch some some Phoenix rays as well. Get get some vitamin D while we mm. had the chance there. Mm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's rare in in uh, in the UK, isn't it? You're back to back it's, to normal. Uh, pretty, <laughs> autumn is relatively overcast and damp, so uh, the uh, right, right, a good season yeah. for writing, Joe. So, 27 degrees in Phoenix was uh, and clear skies was very pleasant. Right, great. Yeah, thanks for that recap, Joe. Uh, any of the cartoons drawn will feature you and Doctor White in the RV, though, for sure. <laughs> mm. Yeah, that's a good. That's good. That's a good uh, book cover podcast. Uh, yeah, book absolutely, absolutely. Well, and uh, you don't have too much time to rest, Joe, because uh, you're you're off to speak at the Bonson Conference uh, in Los Angeles, uh, mid mid November, November seventeenth. 
And uh, shortly after that, you're, you're back here in Canada uh, to speak at our own Mission of God conference in Windsor, Ontario. And we mentioned that on the podcast last week. And that's happening Saturday, December the 10th. And tickets for the conference are on sale now uh, if you go to our website. And we're selling about 100 tickets per week. Uh, so, so get your tickets soon before they sell out. Uh, we want to pack it out, but it, uh, it's going to sell, it's going to sell out at some point here. And they're only 35 bucks, uh, tickets this year, uh, because again, we feel the topics very important and, uh, critical really for Christians to, to think this one through. And the topic this year is climate and of course, all of the propaganda that's, that's surrounding it. So get your tickets for the Mission of God conference from our website, EzraInstitute.com. You can get them there now. And uh, Joe, you mentioned uh, being in um, Tennessee, working with our international director, getting Ezra USA off the ground. And we've got uh, a few U.S. training programs lined up. And we're really excited uh, to, to offer our training programs in the U.S. for the first time. And we've got our H. Evan Runner International Academy happening in Florida, March 18th to the 27th. And uh, if you don't know, that's our 10-day flagship program. Mm. And it's for students and young professionals. And uh, we've also got the Christianity and Culture Colloquium. Uh, happening in the USA in 2023 as well. That's going to be happening in Minnesota from May 21st to the 24th. And of course, that's the program we just ran in, in Canada. And uh, it's our uh, general access program for Christians in all spheres. It's four days long and uh, went so well a, a few weeks ago uh, in Southern Ontario. So we're, we're really keen to get that program uh, happening in the United States. And uh, for, for each of those programs, you can pre-register for them now. If you go to our website, click on programs, look for either one of those programs, and you can be put on that pre-registration list. And there'll be more details coming very shortly on both of those programs. And finally, uh, as crazy as it might sound, the Christmas season is coming very quickly. And our ministry is entirely dependent on uh, on giving, uh, on donations, especially at the end of the year to keep things happening for this ministry. And that's things like this podcast, uh, our conferences, our training programs, everything we do. Uh, we are dependent on people partnering with us financially. And we just want to put it on your radar early uh, that you would prayerfully consider partnering with us. And uh, you can do that by going to our website, go to the homepage, you'll see the donate tab. Uh, and, and we ask that you would uh, prayerfully consider coming alongside us on our mission of cultural reformation and uh, helping us continue to provide all the resources uh, that we and provide. And that includes um, Canadians, Americans, and Brits, doesn't it? On that uh, site, right. you can donate from any of those regions. That's right. Absolutely. That's right. So again, consider joining us uh, on our mission. And uh, again, Christmas is coming soon. And we, we do uh, heavily rely on those end of year gifts uh, in terms of uh, thinking through what can we plan for next year? What can we do? Yeah, thanks a lot, Nathan. And uh, we, don't, uh, we don't say this as often as some podcasters do, but a, another uh, way that, uh, that you can help is by liking, sharing, leaving mm. us a favorable review of this show, yep. uh, wherever yep. you get your podcasts. Yeah, uh, that uh, that helps us get it to get the word out to more people, mm. and we really do appreciate that support. That's not uh, that's not just a token thing. That uh, that's mm -hmm. actually meaningful in this day and age. Well, I want to uh, I want to jump into uh, today's discussion. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, today's or this uh, this short season, we're dealing with Aquinas and uh, various aspects of his life and thought and the implications for how that would actually play out in the real world. One of the, uh, one of the ways that that plays out very, so that we feel that very keenly, very immediately, uh, is in the area of the state. And the state is something that all of us have something to do with 
every day. It's a, it's an inescapable part of life. And so it behooves us to, to have a, uh, a well thought through and biblical understanding of that sphere of society. And Joe, today I, I wanted to uh, get you to give us a survey of Aquinas's uh, political philosophy, effectively. Uh, his, uh, his doctrine and, uh, and philo- philosophy of state and government. Mm-hmm. We know that, we know that uh, he's following closely uh, and uh, lar- largely inspired by Aristotle, uh, one of the things that Aristotle, one of the dicta that Aristotle is famous for is the phrase, man is a political animal. And that's a phrase that, uh, that actually Aquinas uh, uses, uh, uses favorably, uses in uh, quotes as, a, uh, as some, something as a, as a given, something taken for granted. Uh, so I, I'm hoping we can talk about what, uh, what's included or what's implied or obligated in that phrase, uh-huh. uh, as well as what, uh, what you sometimes see if you, if you read Aquinas' uh, works in the, for themselves, is that there, there are occasions where his, his personal convictions seem to be at odds with the, the broader uh, sort of logical obligations or logical conclusions of his uh, more systematic philosophy. So maybe maybe we can get into uh, get into some of that mm-hmm. as well. But uh, I want to turn it over to you, Joe, and uh, ask you to take us through it. Well, I think a good place to uh, that's a good uh, sort of um, uh, map for us as we think about this over the next few minutes. Um, I think what we've uh, from the beginning of this little series tried to um, emphasize is that we don't want to treat Aquinas in the same way that we would treat a pagan philosopher. Um, we don't want to, we don't want to look at him as a pagan, even though, um, we have to keep in mind, uh, always that, um, Aquinas's project is to synthesize the thought of Aristotle, um, with Christianity. Uh, and in part, we've talked about the fact that that was his job description. Um, and so when he runs into these, um, you pointed out, Ryan, that there, there, there are moments where it feels as though Aquinas's personal convictions are at odds with the direction of his philosophy. That tension is created by this uh, attempt to synthesize um, what are fundamentally mutually exclusive starting points um, in the thought of Aristotle over against the teaching of Scripture. And to try and weld together mm. the two sources of authority that Aquinas seems to be working with, natural reason um, uh, in terms of Greek thought and the revelation of scripture. And so you can see how, you know, trying to hold those two kind of notions together, you've just talked about Aristotle's famous statement, the man is a political animal. And how that uh, runs very much counter, actually, to what the Bible teaches about human beings as God's image bearers, um, who hmm. cannot be summed up um, or uh, subsumed in terms of political life, in terms of the the social institutions of the polis. Um, a man is much more than uh, a, a, a being engaged in political life. Um, from a scriptural standpoint, he is the Imago Dei, and he is homo respondens. He is a, a responding being to the word of God in every single area of life, including political life. So this kind of um, almost absolutization in Aristotle of the political, the cultural uh, function, the cultural aspect, becomes problematic for Thomas as he tries to integrate this um, with Christianity. So it's important to start there with his um, with his synthetic project here. Now, um, in Aristotle's view, um, social institutions um, and uh, political life are natural. So uh, remember, the Greeks did not have any conception of a of a perfect creation uh, or a good creation that fell into sin and ruin. 
And so for Aristotle, the societal institutions, the polis, political life is natural. And for him, that included what we might call a, um, a hierarchical um, and elitist view of society where slavery was justified as a natural institution in Aristotle's thought. Now, to Thomas Aquinas' credit, um, as he tries to wrestle with the place of sin um, and the Christian dialogue there, the Christ uh, Christian engagement with um, uh, Aristotle, he doesn't try and justify slavery. But as you said, he does um, regard political life as natural. Um, and he does engage, therefore, in a justification of the social institutions of his own time, feudalism, and, of course, the papal theocracy as natural. And uh, he does quote Aristotle favorably, as you said, um, that man is a political animal. So he gives an, a, a remarkable amount of credence to the pagan conception of the state, something that um, certainly Augustine did not do to the same degree. And in fact, uh, uh, Augustine regarded the pagan state without justice as a band of thieves, um, whereas uh, um, Aquinas um, sees in the state a natural institution that is the essentially the hierarchical and primary organizing uh, structure and institution for human life. Um, part, of, uh, part of the problem is that for, for Aquinas is that sin cannot be part of the rational justification of the state. So whereas in a truly reformed perspective, the state uh, emerges um, in God's purposes to respond to uh, the reality of sin and rebellion against God in a fallen world because it's a ministry of justice to restrain wickedness and evil. Obviously, in the pre-fallen condition, which the Greeks knew nothing of um, the, in, their, in their philosophy, um, there would have been no need for the state um, but but Aquinas is trying to adopt Aristotle's view of the state, where man's a political animal and the state is purely natural. So political obligation for Aquinas, political obligation is simply inherent in man's nature. Um, and uh, politics, um, because it's part of that natural, and we've talked in previous weeks about the nature, supernature, nature-grace dialectic, uh, dichotomy in Thomism, um, because politics is in the natural, in the lower deck, in the lower story, um, the, the political ethics and political life is justified purely in terms of man's reason. So at that point, um, revelation, concrete revelation in Christ and in scripture um, does not play a part. It's it, Political life is irrespective of religious values. It's considered essentially almost neutral. It's about human reason it's the realm of nature. Man there is a, is a political animal. And um, what really ends up happening in, um, in, in Thomas is that uh, just like Aristotle, because he doesn't see, because, because remember in Greek thought, um, reason is a static realm. And therefore, social institutions participating in reason are also static. Uh, they both end up justifying the social institutions of their own era because they are natural. Um, and uh, as I say, to, to his credit, Thomas um, does find a way of um, wrestling away from Aristotle's justification of slavery, but he doesn't get away from um, the strongly hierarchical view that um, political institutions are part of natural morality um, and the pagan state is given this positive value um, over against um, the way in which Augustine would have conceived of the state. So, uh, what? so Joe, does this does this mean? Sorry, just to interject there, does this mean the 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 realm of grace can't be in this paradigm cannot be brought to bear mm -hmm. on? Uh, 
on this aspect because it is natural. Right. Well, that, it's in the realm yeah, of nature. So that, yeah. that's, a, that's a great question because that's where I was actually going next. I'm glad you've asked that um, because mm -hmm. there are then some anomalies here um, in Aquinas. So you have this idea of man as a political animal. You've got uh, the, this natural realm of political life being governed by man's reasoning without um, uh, distinctly religious values or, or, or justification from, from revelation. At the same time, Aquinas has got to find a way to, to glue the supernatural realm of grace and, of course, of course the church um, onto this conception of the state, how a church and state now, given that you've got this conception of the state as the organizing principle fundamentally for natural human society, what uh, role is the church going to play? And um, it's interesting that um, uh, he basically says that the, the, the natural law, um, which is a, the divine law, uh, founded on grace, which we're going to come to in, in, in another week as we have a more broad discussion about natural law, does not abolish human law, um, which derives from natural reason. So he's got natural reason, um, and he, he says that the divine law doesn't, uh, doesn't abolish it. Um, however, he says that, um, let me quote to you from Aquinas from the Summa. He says, such a right of government or authority can, however, be justly abolished by the decision of the church. For unbelievers, on account of their unbelief, deserve to lose their power over believers who are the sons of God. Um, a, very, a very interesting statement. So on the one hand... It sounds like theonomy. <laughs> yeah, so... So there are actually certain things in Aquinas. Um, now, we'll come in a moment to, 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 to describe how this is not sphere sovereignty. Okay? Um, yeah. right. But yeah. um, he, he has to find a way of this superior supernatural institution um, regulating or standing outside of um, the authority of the state. So you've got, you know, the idea of the two swords, if you will, entering the world, and these two institutions, the church, the state, and the church. Um, and uh, his view of society, the state, all all people, all all beings, um, all men are part of the city. And for him, they can't be truly good, and this is incredibly uh, Greek, this is very much Aristotle, they can't be good unless they adapt, them, adapt themselves to the common good. Um, and this is, I'm quoting from Thomas again, nor can the whole, that's the whole of society, be well, be well constituted if its parts be not properly adapted to it. That's really important. Nor can the whole be well constituted if its parts be not properly adapted to it. And we've often explained on our podcast that the fundamental totalitarian idea of pagan philosophy is an organic uh, conception of the state, uh, which swallows up the individual and other societal institutions, this parts to whole relation. And this really grows out of Aristotle's view of the human individual, which we touched on in a previous episode, uh, being um, a, a body soul, the, the soul as the form of the body, um, and therefore a certain type. So with the, with the soul being the form of the body, the human being is distinguished from animals. So what's significant about the individual is that he represents a type in Aristotle. So Thomism kind of takes that uh, idea over and um, the result is that you essentially have a totalizing conception of the state it's the it's the whole being prior to the parts the individual being subordinated to the community um, and of course the family uh, subordinated to the, the the broader community and so on um, they don't have an independent meaning or value apart from the whole of which they're a part. And that is the fundamental problem or one of the key fundamental issues with Aquinas's view of the state is it's an organic view of the state that is thoroughly pagan and totalizing. 
Mm. Um, and this in itself would mi militate against what Aquinas wants, which in part, which is the the um, the, the, the 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 Christian idea um, of God's sovereignty um, and of Christian freedom. So, how are you going to uh, establish um, this? Um, when you've got a view of the state as an organism and the individual as subordinate to the community where the common good is the supreme value. All the other uh, ends are instrumental. It's the common good. Now, that must be familiar to both of you guys, you know, how modern evangelicals have really picked this up, you know, or what's the state's function? It's all about the common good and the state functions in terms of, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, common principles, um, for, of, of reason mm. and so on. Well, this is right out of Aristotle, mediated through mm. Thomas, and yet it's picked up by um, it's picked up by Protestants as though this is a biblical um, perspective. Um, now, mm. so, so and Joe, just to, just to clarify and and to be sure, I'm tracking with you uh, properly here. So because. You know, if the state is to be governed, according to Aquinas, because it exists outside of the realm of grace, it has to be governed by a human institution. So if the church is to govern the state, that that's okay with Aquinas, but it can't be the word of God uh, yeah. bearing on, bearing on the, so state. the state. So the state is governed in terms of natural reason. So he, he, put it this way, we can give Thomas Aquinas credit here. His view mm. was uh, to, to, to try and justify the Christian state, a Christian state with a papal monarchy. So mm. he didn't want a non-Christian state. He, he didn't want a pagan state. He did have this vision of a Christian state mm. because he, he, he would have regarded the, the requirement of princes that rulers and authorities only have... Um, that kind of only have governmental authority if they govern in terms of moral law. And so what he tried to do there was mm -hmm. say, well, moral law is natural reason, but the Decalogue is a kind of compendium of natural reason. Right. So he would he, he would try and say, well, um, the, 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 the Decalogue accords with natural reason as, as its sort of compendium. So the limit that he would place on, which is what you're reaching for, I think, the limit which he would place on a, a totalizing conception of the state was the church. Um, that that right. the church yes. could come in and, as I said earlier, literally say, um, abolish the rule of, of unbelievers, uh, which, <laughs> I mean... How many of these contemporary Thomists um, within evangelicalism and Protestantism that you know we often hear from um, would allow for that? Um, it's it's always this very partial sort of pseudo Thomism that uh, that they want. I mean, if you're going to be being authentically Thomistic, then you desire a Christian state under a papal monarchy. Um, the state fine is operating in terms of natural reason, which you're somehow going to wed with uh, the meaning of the Decalogue. And then, uh, but mm -hmm. the but if it steps out of bounds in terms of moral law, then the church is able, as the supernatural institution, to step in. That's the papal the papal monarchy stepping in there uh, to say uh, no. This is the direction um, you need to go. So. Um, there is a sense in which the individual has something in reserve for a higher end than mere total absorption in the state. So radical pagan totalitarianism is total absorption in the state. Um, Thomas takes over that organic conception of the state, um, but uh, he, he resists that total absorption by saying there is something above, there's something greater and that must be the the delimiting of the rules of justice, which means that church and state have to obey the will of God. Um, and so everything, everything for Augustine turns on turns on what the will of God is. But the will of God, Nathan, is dis mm -hmm. is discerned in two ways: reason, uh, these these uh, two sources of authority, natural law, and uh, revelation 
but both of them are authoritatively interpreted by the church. So right. um, the church is God's voice on earth, the church institute, of course, for him. And so it follows that although um, we might have a we have rights against the state as Christians under God to a degree, because the church institute can intervene, you have no rights against the church. So mm. your what you actually have is not a pagan totalitarian principle worked out consistently. You actually have an ecclesiocracy where the state does have this organic totalizing function within society. But as you said, that grace part, supernatural grace hovering there above is able to uh, intervene and man has no uh, right of resistance or freedom against the instituted church. They must submit to the supreme priest, the successor of the, uh, of um, Peter is the vicar of Christ um, and therefore, uh, uh, Thomas says, all kings in Christendom should be subject as to the Lord Jesus Christ himself to the vicar of Christ. Um, and so his view of um, politics always leads back to a papal theocracy, which is which is why it is so bizarre that um, evangelicals and modern Protestants want to turn back to Thomism um for their resourcement in a radically secularizing culture um because it's crystal clear in in aquinas that he wants a uh a an ecclesiocracy that is a papal theocracy with an organic conception of the state um with very very limited freedom and this comes out in his assertion basically that um the the church had every right to persecute and to indeed execute uh the heretic um for 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 thomas he's completely uncompromising on this um if you have grown up in the faith mm. or you or you've been become a christian and you've received the gift of faith but then you refuse to cooperate with that grace you deserve death and uh, let me quote from um, from Thomas here, if it be just that forgers and other malefactors are put to death without mercy by the secular authority, with how much greater reason may heretics not only be excommunicated, but also put to death when once they are convicted of heresy, end quote. So um, uh, Thomas goes well beyond anything a, a, a Reformation or theonomic thinker would say here. Um, about the death penalty, mm-hmm. <clears throat> about um, people losing their faith, um, apostates, heretics. <clears throat> Incredible that uh, Thomists would criticize theonomists who are concerned with a very narrow application of, of civil offenses um, when the Dr. Angelicus, uh, Angelica here, um, <clears throat> you know, wants to justify the Catholic execution of heretics to be passed on to secular judgment to be exterminated from the world by death. Um, so, Joe, uh, <clears throat> is this uh, for you know for a lot of us who who don't know the in depth uh, ins and outs of this historical period? This this kind of sounds just like boilerplate pre modern Roman Catholicism. Mm-hmm. Is there is there any hmm. innovation in what Aquinas is saying, or is it maybe it's a, is it a chicken and egg situation? Like, what, was Aquinas's the framework that was used by the broader church to justify this kind of position? Or no, I think it's uh, more. I mean, there's going to be an element of reciprocity, but it, it it's more that Aquinas is seeking to justify what the papal theocracy is doing and is engaged with, um, mm. and of course he's used then. Uh, in an ongoing way uh, to justify the papal theocracy and um, this kind of persecution. Um, I mean, you you can ask the question, well, in what respect does this actually differ from a modern totalitarian vision of society? And we can say that it does differ in, in, in one critical respect, and that is that the modern secular totalitarian perspective does not recognize church and state as... Hmm. Um, 
competing mm. powers that are uh, moderating one another um, or protecting mm. protecting liberty the against mm. the, the other. So, yeah. you know, the church. So, and I just wanted to make the point. I mean, the church is non-essential now, right? And, yes, um, I mean the big, the vast, the huge change with secularism is that the um, the church had this this mm. this powerful um, position in medieval culture um, of incredible power and authority, mm. um, such that as we've seen, you know, it, the, the church mm. could intervene. The church could uh, uh, act to depose. Um, a monarch um, it could excommunicate a monarch and say you're done um, and that would uh, that could potentially be the end of a, of, of a ruler that sort of excommunication so there was a, a totalitarian posture of the church as we talk about in ecclesiocracy however in some respects you had you had a totalitarian pagan conception of the state uh, in tandem with a totalizing conception of the church institute and remember we need to distinguish between the body of Christ, of God's people operative in every area of life, and the church institute um, as having power and authority over various different areas of life. Um, and so in with the supernatural realm attached to and overseeing spiritually the, the totalizing organic concept of the state, you did at least have um, liberty of, of a degree from the state and uh, and likewise, when the state pushes back against the church, and this is why it has been pointed out that um, this this dualism did allow a certain kind of liberty liberty to flourish in Western culture, even though it was inadequate, uh, even though it was very limited uh, uh, liberty. The fact that there was this distinction between church and state, and the fact that they um, were able to push back against one another, provided. Uh, a space for liberty that you don't get in the Islamic caliphate in the Islamic world with the, the collapsing of um, these, these offices. Uh, I don't want to call them church and state because there is no such thing as the church in Islam, but you, you could call it a, um, an, a, if you want to call it an ecclesiastical and a political power, um, they're held in one hand. Western Christendom consists in this, in this, this incessant reaction of church to state. And so um, in the final, in the last resort with Thomas, we'd have to say that the church has the final authority over the state and must be um, its master. And so, um, <clears throat> you know, it, it's difficult to believe that Thomas would really have thought that um, Jesus would have supported the notion that, <laughs> uh, um, you know, we should burn our Samaritan neighbor um, at the stake. Um <clears throat> but the, um, the, 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 the fundamental issue was that without a, I mean, Doiverd basically says that the problem is that the natural law school absolutizes the legal principle. And so with this mm -hmm. idea of natural law and politics as natural, you've got this idea of an absolute and inflexible law contained in reason, which the creature has been given um, by God. And so um, the, the natural law, as it gets worked out with Thomas, though, as it did with Aristotle, just ends up justifying these existing institutions, um, which, of course, shows you the, 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 the profound weakness of natural law theorizing, where you try and absolutize a legal principle that doesn't that basically it's unhistorical. It doesn't allow for the progress of the kingdom of God doesn't uh, it, you know it doesn't have the constancy mm -hmm. and change and so mm -hmm. with this mm -hmm. static idea of natural law you've got a static idea of the state and these hierarchical relationships and in aquinas the necessity that there is a there, there this this um there is going to be a ruling elite um who have every natural right to rule over um the lower classes and so there's no and perhaps this is where to, to to draw that distinction at the end here is that although their church and state are, are are side by side to some extent over against one another, providing a certain degree of liberty in Western Christendom because there was more than one institution, the pagan state, there's now these two, because there's this attempt to kind of synthesize uh, Christianity, 
a Christian principle of sovereignty with pagan Roman ideas, you end up with this bizarre ecclesiocracy. And perhaps one of the most um, dangerous outcomes of this is you sphere sovereignty is not recognized. So there's no mm -hmm. sovereignty of each typical structure in human relationships. There's no uh, inner nature to family, individual um, uh, business and vocation and so on and so forth. Um, so you you don't have a recognition in Thomas of sphere sovereignty. And with while Aristotle is absolutizing the state, Thomas now just absolutizes the ecclesiastical institution um, that is going to be the master of the state. Um, and the, the, um, the, the, this, this Thomistic view of the autonomy of natural reason um, welded with a, uh, a, a Christian view of government gives us this bizarre uh, vision of society that actually ends up um, persecuting uh, people. And uh, it's a, you know, none of us looking back would have want to have lived um, in those times of, of, of radical religious persecution. Um, and I think perhaps one of the most negative outcomes is that Thomas's thought, um, as he tries to, to, to glue the, 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 the pagan concept of the state, so that you, but, but Christianized, with a papal theocracy, is that these these absolute the the the, the sort of um, absolutist ambitions of popes within the church, as the church starts to lose um, control in Western society, um, the the monarchies of Europe start to want covet the role that the popes had, that the the that the church had. And so, ironically, Thomas um, revives pagan ideas of authority in this in this synthesis uh, uh, in order to advance the church and and a papal theocracy um, in a sort of Christianized state, and that ends up actually feeding the ambitions of the divine right. Uh, of monarchs wanting to in Europe wanting to accrue right. to themselves that kind of power. Um, in fact, um, uh, one commentator says Thomas Aquinas only furthered the ambitions of the medieval popes to achieve a totalitarian control over Western society. Um, he's losing sight of the fact then Thomas is that the only rule that's total from a Christian standpoint is that of the Lord Jesus, the kingdom of God and their total and the, and the total renewal of all of life in Christ of all of its structures is the truly Christian perspectives um, uh, perspective. But uh, Thomas's view just ends up driving royal authority to adopt those totalitarian ambitions, and you see that with with uh, uh, the absolutist monarchies of Louis the Fourteenth of France in the 17th century, and then the Prussian king Frederick the Great in the 18th century. And it's only because of uh, the Puritan revolution in England, uh, the English revolution, that, that England itself is spared this fate, as you see with Charles I and his ambitions, of an absolutist monarchy that, that coveted the kind of power and authority that the Pope enjoyed. So there is a kind of Profound irony there that is that as Aquinas picks up the pagan thinker Aristotle and interprets him for the church, adopts this organic view of an hierarchical view of the state that is totalizing. But then, as Nathan pointed out, somehow the church is is hovering over the top there as master of the state because it's the supernatural institution. And so that's the caveat, that's the limit that's then placed on the state in a Thomistic view because. God's involved, divine law is involved, etc. The vicar of Christ, then the successor to Peter, has this absolutist control. You've got the papal monarchy, you've got unified ecclesiastical culture. And with that kind of power, as the Renaissance comes and the power of the church, the ecclesiastical institution starts to wane, monarchies in Europe start to covet that kind of power for themselves. And they take on these absolutistic uh uh, ambitions for themselves. And so 
Right. So Joe, what, Joe my, my question would be, and I, I think this might launch into uh, more uh, discussion on sphere sovereignty, but why was that? Why, why was Aquinas' view of the state so easily picked up uh, by the monarchy and carried forward? Well, because the monarchies uh, prior to the Reformation, um, are, they're all Catholics. Um, or the vast majority of them are in Western Europe. So um, they're accustomed to the, uh, the, the papal order. They're accustomed to this unified um, uh, ecclesiastical culture. And, it's bec- and the Reformation comes as part of a pushback against this. Um, it's not just individuals, but, but regions, um, peoples, certain nations are tired of this papal domination. Um, you see this, of course, in England with um, with Henry VIII. That's a broader discussion about some of his motivations. But you see this desire to be freed from uh, papal control by some by some monarchs uh, within Europe. Um, and and but because that's been the example, that's been the model of the medieval period. They pick up that same perspective, and that's why the Reformation is so absolutely vital which then gives us eventually the Puritan Revolution, the English Revolution. But of course, in places like France, where you don't have a Protestant revolution, you don't have the English Revolution, you don't have an Oliver Cromwell, you don't have a glorious revolution. What you have is the French Revolution. You have the ancient regime, this this totalizing regime we're talking about, um, being thrown over in favor of the radical autonomy of reason, uh, you know, the Renaissance uh, vision of, of reason, and now we're in the grip of the Enlightenment, the so-called Enlightenment, and the French Revolution is the expression of that so-called Enlightenment as people are pushing off or pushing away from the ecclesiastical authority of the Roman Church. Um, if they haven't had a Christian revolution, <laughs> a Puritan revolution, a Protestant revolution, a biblical revolution in terms of the word of God, which saves England, you instead have a radically secular humanistic revolution like you see in the French Revolution. And the French Revolution, of course, didn't bring about liberty and freedom uh, that it promised, uh, equality and fraternity. What it actually gave to uh, the West, uh, to Europe, was ever greater centralization of power. Um, and of course, eventually the, the Napoleonic dictatorship. So in the papal program for um, power, we actually detect the seeds of thought of the modern totalitarian state. And, um, and communism, um, total communism, uh, you see it also in fascism, we might, and, and actually today's radical utopianism uh, of the modern secular state uh, and its progressive utopian ideas, ironically, um, they find their seed uh, thought forms in um, the uh, papal medieval uh, totalitarian ideal in the West because the church decided it was going to grab it from pagan Greece. It was going to port it over from pagan Greece, uh, slightly Christianize it, and what's happened? Now, as the West has secularized, it's secularizing that principle again. So we are not left with um, uh, a a free Christian culture, but the secularization of the papal program. And now, of course, we've got these utopian schemes that think that the, the state is the totalizing power that, as you said, Nathan, reduces the church institute to... Um, what did you call it uh, that we've seen in the last couple of years? Non-essential. That's right, a non-essential service. Mm-hmm. Uh, less than non-essential in some cases. Yeah. Um, so both in its religious, the papal theocracy, and its political forms in communism and other uh, totalitarian movements, and then even in today's utopian uh, movements, um, freedom is steadily destroyed. So... I think we'd have to say at the end of the day that Thomas's view of the state stands condemned um, by scripture and by history uh, now. And as I said, we want to be fair to Thomas. He, he envisioned a, a Christian state under a papal theocracy that he was seeking to justify. But the fruit of it has um, has been 
condemned historically. God brought about the Reformation. God brought about the Puritan Revolution in England. Um, and the judgment of God fell on it in Europe with the French Revolution. Because you cannot, the kingdom of God can't be advanced when we adopt the weapons of apostate men like Aristotle. Uh, when we adopt pagan philosophers and try and baptize them as Christian. Um, or if we Aristotelize the life of the church, uh, the, the, the life of the Christian church or, or the gospel itself. In the end, Rome's basic failure, and it remains the basic failure of Rome, and it remains the failure of the two kingdoms theorists and all the sort of evangelical Thomists today, is as the failure to distinguish between the kingdom of God and the church institute, between the universal body of Christ at work in all spheres of life in terms of the kingdom of God and ecclesiastical uh, life and ecclesiastical authority. And that's why we see today many Christians who are in the grip of this dualism uh, and hanging on to Thomistic conceptions, retreating radically from any idea of a Christian state because they see in it, the, because they, they, they would see in that the implication that we need a totalizing view of the church's mm -hmm. role in society. Uh, they think that, well, the only way to have a Christian state would if everybody were actually confessingly Christian, and that's not the case. So, um, uh, And we don't want a, uh, a church institute, again, dominating society to make it Christian. Therefore, society can't be Christian. Mm -hmm. The only society that can be Christian is the, the institutional church. And so they don't, they don't recognize the principle of sphere sovereignty and the principle of the kingdom of God as the only totalizing principle. Uh, and therefore, they can't see their way through to the reality of the gospel of the kingdom shaping every area of life without any need for a church institute to dominate human society. In other words, Christ is Lord over church and state. And so I think there we kind of, in a certain sense, tracked through, granted in a limited way, but a bit of a whistle-stop tour, how we got from the one case of affairs to where we are today. And I think we have to conclude that Thomas's project here, as we see it manifest in the, his view of the state and the church, is misguided. Yep. Thanks, Joe. That's a uh, that's a great summative comment on the whole, to put a cap on the whole thing, that Christ is Lord of church and state. And I guess at risk of restating the obvious, an ecclesiocracy, an ecclesiastical uh, totalitarianism is not better than a, a civil totalitarianism. Mm -hmm. You know, there are, there are differences, there are distinctions, but that one is not good while the other is bad. Well put. Uh, guys, I know that uh, you've got uh, obligations. Really grateful for our time together. And uh, for all of you who are listening, thanks for being with us again this week. We remind you that from him and through him and to him are all things. Jesus is king above all, and we, uh, we look to honor and glorify him alone. This has been the podcast for Cultural Reformation, and we'll look forward to seeing you next week.